This is the Pain Information Network. Let's go to Brazil. Through Andrea Trescat, I had the pleasure of meeting Andre Mansano, MD, PhD today, a Brazilian physician who's down there with Andrea teaching some very dedicated students interventional pain. The incredible thing about medicine is, you know, we have borders, but really no boundaries. When it comes to taking care of people, we enjoy it so much. We have the opportunity to to get to people for three things, you know. We want to, first of all, get them access to care. We want them to know we're there, that we can help them, and they don't have to suffer. Number two, we want a good clinical outcome. We want them to have the best possible uh, outcome as part of function and quality of life. And and number three, we want to do it safely. The risk-reward benefit definitely needs to be in the patient's favor. And that's where this training comes in. And somebody experienced and and as world-class as as Andrea and as Dr. Manzano can get it across to students the best way to treat people from both an interventional standpoint, you know, when to do these interventions, but sometimes more importantly, when not to do them. And so that's that's kind of our fun discussion today because, let's face it, you know, the option of getting put on a bunch of pills is not a really great option, especially in this world where opioids are, are problematic. We, uh, we want to have other things available. So, Andrea, hats off to you going to Brazil. And Dr. Mansano, thank you for everything you're doing. So let's get to it. Well, welcome back, everybody. Uh, today I have a, as a special guest, uh, Andre. Can you please go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, everybody. I'm Andre Mancano. I'm an interventional pain physician from Brazil, the south of Brazil. I work in Campinas, that is a city close to Sao Paulo. I work at Singular Pain Management Center. I think it's the, it's the first APP uh, in Brazil, for sure. Uh, I am PhD in anesthesiology and I'm also a FIPP Fellow of Interventional Pain Practice, a title award by the World Institute of Pain. That's great. Yeah. I, uh, as well as Andrea, did the FIPP examination in Budapest. Is that where you did yours? I did it in Miami. Oh, yeah. So you had to come to Miami. That's great. Was that last year by any chance? Uh, no, no. Uh, my FIPP? Yeah. Uh, 2014. Okay, great. Well, so today, all the way from Brazil, uh, we have a special guest, and this is not just MD, MD this is MD-PhD, which is a, a a very strong academic credential to have. And so you do have an academic background. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, since my graduation period, uh, well, I'm very interested in academics and studies and trials and articles. So since my second uh, year in medicine, I used to to watch some uh, PhD thesis in, at my university. So this is fascinating. So as a master, I used to, to, to say that we're able to read science. And as PhD, we're able to to make to create science. This is is very very important. 
Yeah, that's great. So, okay, of your particular interest is interventional pain medicine. Uh, now, in Brazil, I know, being an FIPP uh, standardized uh, uh, recipient, uh, you're pretty much doing what we do here in America. But tell us, tell us in Brazil about access to care. Um, how how are the patients finding you, and are they getting to uh, present to all of the potential uh, procedures that we do? Um, just uh, just as Andrea has taught. Yeah. Uh, actually, in Brazil, uh, interventional pain medicine is such a uh, unknown speciality. So uh, many, many patients and also many physicians do not know what we really do. So uh, maybe they, they think that we perform blocks. Blocks. And uh, it's a, a general uh, term for what we do. So we have to, to make a huge uh, internet marketing. It's not marketing, it's like uh, widespread in uh, what we do. So it's very common to patients arrive to our clinic after eight, nine, ten physicians uh, before us because the pain is, is very intense, very severe. Yeah, that's right. And that's exactly the way it is in America, too. A lot of times people don't understand what we do. They just say, do a block. Like, what is a block? You know, it could be anything from, you know, a nerve block to a central access injection like an epidural, which is not really a block. So now, okay, walk me through somebody uh, that has uh, low back pain, for example. Um, Tell me about how they present to your clinic. Yeah, actually... They present to our clinic with a uh, long-term history of low back pain with no diagnosis, no specific diagnosis. So we used to usually, of course, uh, they pass through uh, meticulous physical examination that is very important. And we always um, set the importance of the diagnostic block because, as everybody knows, MRI are not so is not so um, has not the power of identify the source of pain. So we have to exam- examine this patient and also many times perform a diagnostic block to make sure what the source of pain. This is very important. It is. So it is. yeah. So we have uh, physical therapists, speciality. We have psychologists, even psychiatrists when we need. So we. We, we're able to offer a global treatment for our patient. This is very important. Yeah, that's actually probably better than uh, the U.S. in many uh, uh, you know, scenarios because it's very hard for us to have a traditional multi-modality uh, pain clinic where we do have the psychiatric end, where we do have the personal touch and the diagnostic interventional stuff. We just, we just can't get that a lot of times in America, so we end up doing a lot of blocks. And it's not always about the block, is it? It's a it's a much bigger picture. And low, yeah. low back pain is a symptom, let's face it. So you're right, you have to have the diagnosis. Now, Andrea is real big on headaches, and I know she's talked a lot about peripheral nerves. Uh, do you all do a lot of per- peripheral nerve blocks as well? Yes, yes. Actually, this, this uh, week I had a very interesting case. Uh, uh, a young w- woman, uh, I think 50 years old, present with uh, uh, a pain in her 
right cervical uh, area radiating through her ear only when she lay down. So she cannot sleep well since two years ago, for, for example. She used to wake up 2 a.m. and start walking because laying down is very, very, very bad for her. And she has tenderness over her AA joint. So I perform an interarticular AA joint block with loco and steroids. And finally, she has her first night of full sleep. For <laughs> so as you can, so this is very important to find the source of pain. Yeah, that's true. You know, it's, that's the rewarding thing for us. And that's an international uh, feeling of goodwill when we can take somebody whose quality of life was not good and turn it around and hopefully avoid controlled substances and narcotics. So I'm, you know, I'm sure you understand America uses controlled substances such as opioids to an excess. Tell yes. us about your country. Tell us, tell us how you, you handle controlled substances. Uh, actually, we, we're always one or two steps back, back from the U.S. So uh, I think 10, 10 years ago, we're facing a problem, the opposite, opiophobia. So we prescribe very little opioids because many physicians are, were afraid of prescribe, prescribing opioids. So now U.S. Uh, is facing this problem. Uh, we have CDC data that in 1999, something near 4,000 people died because of opioids in the U.S. And in 2006, this number was as big as 15,000. So we're not facing this problem yet because we prescribe few opioids, I think. Too little opioids. Yeah. Yeah, but, you know, um, I, I think what you all do is avoid the mistake that we made, and the pendulum is now swinging back toward the middle, but we way over-prescribe based on really crummy data um, and, and the fallacy of false generalization. So you, your com country, I'm sure, will learn from our mistake. We have uh, more people dying from opioid uh, overdoses uh, that are of... Um, the prescription uh, type, not the heroin street type, then we have people dying in car accidents. It's, it's about 20,000 a year now. That's ridiculous, and you just don't want to step in that. So yeah. um, you, you wise people over there have uh, figured our, our mistake out. So do, what kind of regulatory controls do you have for controlled substances over there? Are they pretty tight? No, they're not pretty tight. The only thing we have is uh, a specific uh, sheet form to prescribe opioids that many patients, many physicians do not have access. Uh, so this is the, the, only, the only regulatory we can prescribe for any patient you, we want, if, for, for example. There's no regulatory, it's not so, uh, so tough like uh, it should be. Yeah, well, true, and that's that is good. It should be uh, it should be common sense, uh, getting patients what they need when they need it, and not to an excess. Um, so, I also know that you have an interest in outcomes, and 
Um, we've seen a lot of uh, outcome data come through the literature, and I know the American Society of Interventional Pain Physicians and uh, the World Institute of Pain is keenly aware of best outcome for our patients. So walk me through low back pain and some positive outcome predictors that you think help your patients. Well, uh, low back pain is very interesting. We have uh, a study uh, published in Lancet, I think, 2015. It's uh, a study founded by Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation that evaluates uh, years lived with disability mm-hmm. caused by a specific disease. And low back pain is the main source of years lived with disability followed by uh, depression today. So this is very important. I mm. think the most predictable thing of success is finding the source of pain. For example, um, if you want to perform uh, medial branch uh, radio frequency, this is not good for low back pain. This is good for facet low back pain. And so mm-hmm. we have to, to make sure that our source of pain is it's right. Uh, we have to make to different things like facet pain, SI joint pain, discogenic pain, or even uh, uh, a muscle pain. So I think this is very important. And one thing that makes things uh, worse and more difficult is patients with uh, work problems and maybe relationship problems that use pain as a secondary gain. So this is very, very common in our country. Well, ours too. So you see that. Do you have like a workman's comp system there? Workers yes. compensation? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah, we have that here. And, uh, you know, kind of these vague symptoms in the workman's comp arena are very poorly uh, construed to outcome, and that's in a positive sense because there's financial gain. Is there financial gain there? Yeah, for sure. Okay, okay. All right. Now tell me a little bit about stimulators, um, access to care, and what kind of uh, stimulators do you like? Well, in Brazil, we do not do not have access yet to high-frequency stimulators, so we usually have uh, tonic stimulation. Well, that is pretty good, but it's not so good for axial low back pain, for example, after uh, uh, for a failed back surgery syndrome, for example. It's very difficult to manage this kind of, of patients. So we're waiting for high frequency here yet, and we're waiting for DRG stimulation yet. So the main, the main indication for stimulation here is failback. It's failback. Yeah. And for uh, the listeners that don't know, high-frequency stimulation is where the hertz or the uh, cycles uh, takes away some of the tingling and the the traditional feelings that you get with stimulation because the frequency is high. And we don't even necessarily worry about the programming as much on the table. We just put the lead in because the frequency usually takes over. And DRG stimulation, it's hard to do, isn't it? Do you, do you know much about that? Have you seen that? No, no. I have seen it uh, once, but never perform it because we don't have, don't have it here. <laughs> yeah. It's, everybody that's done them. It says it's hard to do, but they get pretty good results. So um, I have not done one. I'm sure it's in the works, but it's still 
kind of hard to do here in the U.S. as well. So that's a work in progress. So, okay, what else do you like to do? Um, you know, it's, it's not all about low back pain. What about the neck? Uh, the neck, uh, this is very interesting because neck pain, it's a, a huge cause of disability in Brazil. Uh, interesting, we do not have so many uh, whiplash patients as you have. Uh, I don't know why. Uh, this is very interesting. We do not have this kind of patients. We have many patients with facet pain here in Brazil, but not with whiplash uh, syndrome. Uh, the problem, I think, that in 5, 10, 20 years, we will face uh, a dramatic increase of neck pain because of smartphones. So yeah, there's right. a, yeah, there's an interesting study showing that uh, in neutral position, our load in the cervical region is something like uh, five kilograms, I think, ten, five kilograms, yes. Uh -huh. And with a flexion of uh, 60 degrees, this overload rise to 27 kilograms. So we can imagine how things were going to happen with when, when child and teenagers are being exposed to this overload in her in their next region yeah you're exactly right and people don't realize that it's a it's a bowling ball sitting on a, a little bit of soft tissue structures and a, a a spine that moves multiple directions so you're exactly right when our head is down it adds a lot more biomechanical stress and that sets up for facet problems uh, not necessarily so much discogenic you know in america we i don't know what we do with our necks but uh the in the neck uh, the disc is going to go out sideways where in the low back because of the posterior longitudinal ligament it tends to want to go uh the opposite direction directly out toward the cord so it's a whole different set of dynamics, and uh, and I, I've heard um, Andrea talk about it as well when she talks about headaches. And yes. do you uh, do you do a lot of uh, high cervical blocks for headaches over there? Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, for headaches, usually we try to to aim the SPG ganglion, mm -hmm. maybe uh, mainly for cluster and side locket migraines. Mm -hmm. uh, with uh, with good resu good results. Yeah, yeah. We uh, I do a lot of C two nerve root blocks, and I do some C three uh, third occipital nerve uh, RFs. The trouble with that though is it gets people dizzy, and so you just got to kind of warn them. But you're right; I'm seeing more and more of it because people are on devices and they got their head yeah. down, and they really do. So, what is about the most common thing you see in uh, Brazil? Uh, the most common thing I see in Brazil, of course, is low back pain and headache patients. But patients frequently search me because uh, finds me because of trigeminal neuralgia. I don't know why. Wow. <laughs> I wow. don't know why. That is a tough one. That is one of the toughest. In fact, uh, in America, it's a risk factor for suicide. It's so bad. Yeah. That and cluster headaches. It is so bad. And, yeah, there's some neurosurgical techniques and the like, but I'm telling you, a good interventional procedure, a good sphenopalatine ganglion block can do a bunch. A good trigeminal nerve block can do a bunch. And uh, yeah. do you ever do uh, uh, nasal applied uh, pledgets for sphenopalatine ganglion blocks? Often. I prefer to the infrazygomatic approach, but sometimes 
uh, I perform this this kind of block. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's less sensitive, less specific, but uh, it's a good technique. Yeah, I agree with you. I completely agree with you. All right, anything else we uh, we ought to touch on? Because uh, it sounds like uh, we're all on the same page with uh, taking care of a patient in pain. Uh, we don't yeah. like to give narcotics. We think interventional pain procedures are great. Um, do you have much of a problem with addiction in Brazil? No. Yeah. No, I don't have problem with addiction. No, no, definitely not. Oh, man. I think one thing very interesting in interventional pain physician is evidence-based medicine. Uh, because it's, it's kind of difficult to use evidence-based medicine in interventional pain medicine. Our, our pyramid, it's under construction. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, I was a clinician before uh, making anesthesiology and interventional pain medicine. And my slogan as a clinician was, uh, I believe in God. The rest, the rest show me data. Yeah. Now, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll quote I, you on that. That's good. Yes, that was very boring. I, know, I used to know every name of study. So I was very, a very boring guy. <laughs> but, now, but now, as an interventional pain physician, my slogan changing to, of course, we need to search for more evidence, but our patient cannot wait for that. Of course, they cannot. They do not want uh, to wait for another article, another study to get her pain relief. Of That's course, right. we, have to, we have to solve his, uh, their problem. So it's, it's very, very difficult. Yeah. And regarding evidence-based medicine, there is a, real, a huge problem that is a publication bias. Uh, this is a neg neglected bias. That's the technical term for the phenomenon where unflattering data gets lost, gets unpublished, is left missing in action. action. It's, twice, it's twice more easy to publish a study with positive data than a negative one. So there's a very interesting study uh, evaluating antidepressants 37 of the positive trials involving antidepressants were published in full except one and the trials with negative results had a different fate only three were published wow. 22 were never published so uh, we we cannot know exactly which is in literature. This is a very difficult issue to, to manage. Yeah. I uh, learn a lot. I, I review a lot of articles for Pain Physician. It's a journal. And I learn more from articles that have negative results. You know, no one wants to hear negative. But I, and, and I, hear, I hear loud and clear when somebody has a bad outcome. I want to hear about those things. But we don't hear about it. We only hear about the positive results. And in pain, it's so much sub subjectivity, um, we almost have to take it on, on face value, although the evidence might be a little sketchy. Agree with that? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's great. Well, listen, uh, anything else you want to talk about? Uh, it's been tremendous having you. Uh, I, I appreciate this international touch. It's just great to get on the podcast and uh, share with the world. Anything else? No, I'm honored and thankful to talk with you. Well, no, no, it uh, honors us. And uh, please uh, come back on again sometime and uh, go up and give Andrew a big hug for me, okay? 
Okay. <laughs> All right. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Have a nice Sunday. Thank you, Dr. Monsanto. Thank you, Andrew, for the introduction. It's very gratifying to know that even though geographically we're separated throughout the world, we all have our different places in the world that we practice, we all have the same goal, and that's to reduce pain and suffering. So you don't have to hurt. Ask your provider of health care if you could get please refer to somebody that practices pain medicine as a specialty, and we can offer interventional procedures. We can offer these unique pharmacologic management solutions. We we understand the risks and options of a lot of things that are out there to give you the best outcome you could possibly have. So go leave a uh, review for me at iTunes if you please could. It helps us get visible so other people can find us. And if you have a question or if you want a topic brought up, go to paininformation.com. And thank you very much. We will see you next week.